following is a teaching from Irving Bible Church. For more information on how you can join us on a Sunday or take your next step, visit irvingbible.org. Well, good morning, everybody. So glad that you have joined us this morning. Um, I want to add my voice of amen to the prayer that uh, Jason prayed earlier. So we pray for the people in the church in Ukraine. And I want to just call us all to be a church that is committed to praying about that situation. You know, the Bible tells us that there is coming a day when the nations will beat their swords into plowshares and they will study war no more. And as we await that day, we, the people of God, have a significant responsibility in the world. Responsibility to cry out to God, to show his mercy, to bring justice and peace. And so let's be a church that's committed to doing that together. If you have your Bible with you this morning, grab it and let's go to Revelation chapter 21. Revelation 21. We started out this series uh, on the first two pages of the Bible. We're going to end this series on the last two pages of the Bible. So turn with me to Revelation 21. And I wonder, as you're turning there, I wonder if there's anything in your life where you've experienced that, that you thought you had something figured out. Like you thought you knew something. Only to discover later that you had completely misunderstood you know this experience, right? You, just, you, th- you think you got it. You think you understand it. You, you think you know what it is. And then, and then you come to discover you didn't have it right at all. Um, uh, I came across a Twitter thread this week that was cracking me up, reading through some of these examples of, of people in their lives that had done this. The, the woman who started the thread um, asking the question shared one of hers. It was she grew up in church singing that little song, um, uh, Father Abraham has many sons, many sons has Father Abraham. And she was convinced that it was about Abraham Lincoln. And so she was just devastated to learn that Abraham Lincoln did not, in fact, have many sons. Uh, There was somebody else that said that up until his 20s, that he thought, when he heard making ends meet, that he thought ends meet was an affordable uh, animal protein for people who were struggling financially, right, to make ends meet. Um, (laughs) Another one shared that when she was a teenager, she was at home alone, and um, she decided she was going to make brownies, and the recipe called for egg whites, which she, I think, reasonably assumed were the white part on the outside of the egg. And so needless to say, her brownies were a little bit crunchy, right? (laughs) Perhaps my favorite on the whole thread was uh, a woman sharing about one of her Bible college professors who grew up in Sunday school singing that song, This Little Light of Mine, I'm Gonna Let It Shine. And and yet when it came to that verse about hide it under a bushel, um, he kind of misunderstood. So he would sing with all his gusto, hide it under a bush, hell no. I kind of like that version. Now, children, nobody go home singing like that. You can't say Pastor Barry said it was okay. No, let's not have any misunderstandings. I don't want emails about that one. Um, another one I thought of when, I'm, when reading this thread, it wasn't part of the thread. It actually came from uh, uh, hearing from a former employee, uh, employer of mine, a story that he told about growing up in church. And they sang that hymn that says, uh, there's a glorious church without spot or wrinkle. Washed in the blood of the lamb. Except he was convinced that it was, there's a glorious church in South Puerto Rico. Washed in the blood of the lamb. So he grew up wanting to go two places. He wanted to go to, to, the, to the Holy Lands. And he wanted to go to South Puerto Rico to see that glorious church. You ever had that experience? Right? Where you, you thought you had something figured out. You thought you knew it. Only to discover you had it wrong. You, you misunderstood I think there's a whole lot of people that are that way with the story of the Bible. I think there's a whole lot of people that think the way the story ends is is evacuating earth to get to heaven. 
That, that, that there's so many that, that think that, that ultimately the end of the story is disembodied spirits floating around on clouds playing little harps. I don't enjoy harp music for just a few minutes, much less for all of eternity, right? But a lot of us have that sense that the, the, the end of the story is to get from down here to up there. But what we find when we come to the end of the biblical story is the way the story ends is up there coming down here. We are this week in the eighth week of this sermon series called The Story of God. And we talked throughout this series about the idea that the Bible tells a singular story. The the Bible is written over uh, millennia. It's written by many different authors. It's written in, in three different languages. And yet it holds together as a single story. And we talked about this idea of a, a, a plot line or a narrative arc that looks something like this. That every great story begins with an introduction, an exposition, where we're introduced to the, the main characters and the setting of the story. That every great story has a conflict, an inciting incident that, that introduces conflict into the story. And from there, the rising action, that is the unfolding of the consequences of that conflict. Until ultimately you reach the climax. This is the definitive response to the problem of the conflict. Then you have the falling action, which is the unfolding of the consequences of the climax. And then ultimately the denouement, the closing scene that ties all the threads together. And the Bible, we said, follows this plot line. It begins with the story of creation. God, who made this world that he loves and looks at this world that he loves and says, is it good? It is good. It is good. It is very good. God creates human beings in his image that he might dwell with them. They might worship him. That they might serve as stewards of his rule and reign over his good creation. But then conflict enters. Sin enters the story. And with sin comes shame and death. And from the time that sin enters the story, this this world that is supposed to be God's glorious kingdom, his domain becomes contested territory. It becomes the dominion of sin, death, and the devil. And then we get the rising action, the story of Israel in the Old Testament where God enlists Abraham and his descendants, the the people of Israel, to be the means through which he carries forward his rescue mission in the world. But as we saw in Israel's story, those who are supposed to be part of the solution consistently demonstrate themselves to be part of the problem. And so we ultimately reach the climax of the story, the incarnation, the life and ministry, the the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus. Jesus, the climax of the biblical story, who has come to definitively deal with sin and death, triumphing over it through his resurrection. Death is broken, we sang earlier. And then we get the unfolding of the consequences of that climax in the story of the church. The church is now enlisted in as God's, the means by which God's mission goes forward in the world, this multi-ethnic mission that God has called us into to bring the good news of the gospel to all nations. And then finally, this morning, we reach the denouement, the tying together of all of these threads. And we come here to this final scene in the biblical story. I think what we have here puts everything that's come before it into very important perspective. Some of you may remember that 1999 film, The Sixth Sense. Can you believe it's been since 1999? I, I won't give any spoilers for the film, although it has been 23 years. Um, <laughs> But if you know the film, if you know what I'm talking about, you you remember there is a scene at the end of the movie that puts everything that's come before it into perspective. I think that's what we have here at the close of the Bible. We have a scene 
that when we see this, it provides perspective on everything that has come before. Look with me, Revelation 21, beginning in verse 1. Uh, John, the author of uh, Revelation, writes, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now with the people, and he will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. And he will wipe every tear from their eyes. And there'll be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. For the old order of things has passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, I'm making everything new. So it's really important that we notice right off the bat that what John says that he sees, that John has given this vision of the culmination of human history, the culmination of the, the history of the world as we know it. And what he sees is, he says, a new heaven And a new earth. John sees up there coming down here. A new heaven and a new earth. A a renewed material creation. And this is really important for us to see. That all the way back at the beginning of the story. We said God looked at everything that he'd made. And he said it is good. It is good. It is good. When you get to the end of the story. He hasn't changed his mind. He hasn't decided it's not good. He hasn't decided to toss it on the cosmic dustbin. No, he says this good world that is broken by sin, I am going to renew. That our ultimate hope, the end of the story is renewed material creation, new heavens and new earth. And and there's this little line in here. He says, I saw a new heaven, new earth, and there was no longer any sea. Now, for some of us, that might sort of bum us out. If what we're actually hoping for is a renewed material creation, but there's not going to be any sea, what's up with that? Well, you have to understand that in the ancient Near Eastern world, the sea was a kind of symbol for them. It carried uh, rich symbolic significance. And the sea represented for them chaos and destruction and death. Again, if you remember all the way back at the beginning of the story in Genesis 1, The creation, and we see that scene there where the Spirit of God is hovering over the waters. This image that's always in the background of the biblical story. The sea is chaos, destruction, death. What what John does is in this um, revelation, he provides us a, a look into the future, but in ways that are highly stylized and symbolic. And we have to sort of tease out the 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 symbolism. And I think this is John's way of saying chaos, destruction, and death is no more. And he said, I saw the holy city, the the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God. That's interesting. At the end of the story is new Jerusalem. Well, it's worth noting that the prophets, the Old Testament prophets, 74 different times point ahead to a coming day where Jerusalem will be restored or made new. Um, that, uh, that, that, that this is part of their imagination. What, what's going to happen when, when God returns to his people and sets the world right? Jerusalem renewed. Well, what's the big deal about Jerusalem? Well, what's in Jerusalem that makes it important, that makes it particularly special? It's the temple. And what is it about the temple that makes the temple particularly special? The personal presence of God. Right? In biblical imagination, the, the, the Holy of Holies at the center of the temple, at the center of Jerusalem, was the place where the very presence of God dwelt. 
And so the Old Testament prophets look ahead to a coming day when God would return to his people and set the world right. And they imagined it as a new Jerusalem, the personal presence of God. And and look what what John does then here in verse three, emphasizing this idea of God's personal presence. He says, and I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now with the people and he will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. John uses several words here to just underscore this idea of the personal presence of God. The first is the word, um, he will dwell with them. He will make his dwelling place. The, the word um, dwell is skene, the noun, skene, and then skenao, the verb. Skene, in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, is the word that's used to refer to the dwelling place of God in the tabernacle. God will make his tabernacle, his dwelling place with them. Skenao, that verb form, is the word that's used in John chapter one, talking about Jesus coming and skenaoing among us, making his dwelling among us. And then three times, John uses the little word with. He will be with them, with them, with them. NIV translates one of those as among, which I don't understand why. It's the same word. He will be with them. John is trying to forcefully make the point that our great hope is for the personal presence of God to come and pervade this renewed material creation. This becomes, interestingly enough, even clearer when you look ahead just a few verses. And this isn't going to be on the screen, so I just want you to listen, or you can look with me if you have your Bible, starting in verse 15. John says, the angel who talked with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city, its gates, and its walls. The city was laid out like a square. Okay, so picture this is a square city, which already says it's an interesting city. I don't think I've ever seen a square city before, right? The city was uh, laid out as a square, as long as is wide. He measured the city with the rod and found it to be 12,000 stadia, which is supposed to be stunning for us, right? We're supposed to have our jaws drop at that point, except we don't know what a stadia is, unless you have a little note in your Bible like mine. Uh, uh, 12,000 stadia is the equivalent of about 1,400 miles. That's the distance from here to Los Angeles, Right? This is a square city that's as big as the distance from here to Los Angeles in a square. Ever seen a city like this? This is, this, I mean, this is, this is crazy. This is huge. This is a giant city. And interestingly enough, in the first century world when John is writing, the size of the known world for the people that John is writing to is about 12,000 stadia. What John is writing is he's describing for them in their imagination, a world encompassing city. And then keep reading. He he measured the city with a rod and found it to be 12,000 stadia in length and as wide and as high as it is long. 12,000 stadia, 1,400 miles that way, 1,400 miles that way, and 1,400 miles that way. What's the shape? It's a cube. A giant, world-encompassing cube. That's a strange city, right? Keep reading. Found it to be 12,000 stadia in length, as wide and as high as it is long. And the angel measured, um, measured the walls 
using human measurements, and it was 144 cubits thick. The wall was made of jasper and the city of pure gold, as pure as glass. So John is describing this new Jerusalem descending down out of heaven as a giant gold cube. This is weird, isn't it? Can we just say that? This is bizarre. What is going on? Well, whenever you come across something strange like this in the Bible, what you have to do is sort of scratch your head and say, have I come across anything remotely like this before? And if you're a careful Bible reader, what you find is the answer to that is yes. That there's only one other place in the whole Bible, 1 Kings chapter 6, where we see something that is described as a cube. And oh yeah, it just happens to be gold. 1 Kings 6.20, the inner sanctuary was 20 cubits long and 20 wide and 20 high. He overlaid the inside with pure gold as he overlaid, and he also overlaid the altar of cedar. What, what's this describing? This is the Holy of Holies at the center of the temple. The Holy of Holies is a 20 by 20 gold cube. And now at the end of the biblical story, John says, I saw the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, a giant world encompassing Holy of Holies. The personal presence of God pervading the renewed material creation. Friends, if you're a follower of Jesus, right, if you've trusted in Christ for your salvation, the Holy Spirit, the personal presence of God comes to take up residence in your life. We have the Holy Spirit with us wherever we go, whatever we do. He is always there with us. But do we always experience that? Do we, do we always um, feel that? Do we always remember that? No, the reality is oftentimes we don't. Oftentimes we forget that he is with us. We neglect the presence of God in our lives. Sometimes we would prefer to crowd out the presence of God in our lives. And yet what John is saying here is there's coming a day when we will always and forever experience the nearness, the presence of God pervading the new creation in ways that our experience of the Holy Spirit now is only just a little foretaste of what is ultimately to come when we will always know, feel, experience the personal presence of God. And then look what John does next. Verse four, back to verse four. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There'll be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. John says the end of the story is death is vanquished fully and finally and forever. And he uses this tender imagery of the Lord wiping every last tear from every last cheek. I mentioned earlier in the sermon, my former employer, the one that wanted to go to South Puerto Rico. Um, that was uh, a guy that I worked for about 25 years ago, a guy named Steve Ferrar. Some of you that have been around IBC for a long time uh, may remember Steve and his wife, Mary, their daughter, Rachel, their sons, John and Josh. Um, I got news this week that Steve Farrar passed away. And I was just thinking about him and I was thinking about his presence, his impact on my life. Um, I worked for Steve and, and we didn't have a lot of like long heart to heart kind of conversations, but, but there was one car ride that quite literally changed the trajectory of my life. 
Um, I had applied to, been accepted, and actually had already lined up student housing to go to seminary. And Steve had written me a letter of, of recommendation. And so Kim and I were in our first year of marriage. We're about to move into student housing. And Steve starts asking me about it. He was asking, kind of probing questions about it. Tell, t- tell me about this and your decision on this. And, and ultimately what came out in that conversation was I had made the decision to go to this particular seminary because it was a denominational school and I could go for cheap. And we could live in student housing for cheap. And, and the more I talked, the more clear it became what I really wanted to do was I really wanted to go to Dallas Theological Seminary. But I was worried about money. And he just challenged me very directly as Steve was wont to do. And he just said, Barry, you have to trust that if God is calling you to Dallas Seminary, that he will provide for you to go to Dallas Seminary. And I knew he was right. And so I just mustered up the courage that night to call Kim from my hotel room and say, I think we should withdraw and I should apply to Dallas Seminary next semester. I spent 15 years on the faculty at Dallas Seminary because of one providential car ride with Steve Farrar. I am now the senior pastor at Irving Bible Church because in 1994, me and a couple of buddies followed the Farrar family to a little church called Irving Bible Church on Finley Road, South Irving. So I thought a lot about Steve this week. I thought about Mary and Rachel and John and Josh. I thought about this passage. The comfort that comes from knowing that there is coming a day when death will be no more. When death will be vanquished forever. When God will wipe every last tear from every last cheek. And the the language that John uses here in um, Revelation 21, once again, is language that points back, that draws on uh, Isaiah the prophet. Isaiah chapter 25. This, I think, is is my favorite passage in all the Bible. Isaiah chapter 25, beginning of verse 6. The Lord speaking through the prophet says, On this mountain, that is Mount Zion, on this mountain, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all the peoples. A banquet of aged wine, the best of meats and the finest of wines. There will be sweet tea for the Southern Baptists among us. (laughs) On this mountain, he will destroy the shroud that enfolds all the peoples, the sheet that covers all nations. He will swallow up death forever. The sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces. He will remove his people's disgrace from all the earth. The Lord has spoken in that day. They will say, surely this is our God. We trusted in him and he saved us. This is the Lord. We trusted in him. Let us rejoice and be glad in his salvation. There is coming a day when death will be vanquished. And where the Lord will wipe your very last tear. And every last year from every last cheek. This is the picture of shalom. Of God's peace come in its fullness. I talk a lot about shalom because that's what we see at the end of the biblical story. That's where it's all headed. The Bible begins Genesis 1 and 2 with shalom. Everything the way it's supposed to be. And ends Revelation 21 and 22 with shalom. Everything the way it's supposed to be. Everything in the middle is marred by sin and death. You take sin and death out of the Bible, you have a pamphlet. Four chapters. (laughs) But this is our great hope for God's peace to come in its fullness. And we are dramatically reminded right now that this world could use 
some peace. God's personal presence, God's perfect peace. And and then look with me in verse five. Verse five. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. I'm making everything new. This world I'm making new. You I am making new. I I came across a church a number of years ago that had a wonderful mission statement. I I loved it. That that their mission statement was simply joining God in the renewal of all things. Isn't that good? That God is renewing everything. And he will one day bring that to its completion. He's inviting us now to join in with him. To be a part of that process. To reclaim for God what rightly, rightly belongs to him. Joining God in the renewal of all things. But notice what it says. It says, he who is seated on the throne. Now, what kind of person sits on a throne? A king. A king sits on a throne. And and, and so what we have here is we have God's kingdom that's come in its fullness. That we said all the way back at the beginning of the biblical story, God is the rightful king over all that he has made. The psalmist says this in Psalm 16, that the Lord is king over all the earth. And yet we read in Zechariah, the Lord will be king. So which is it? He is king or he will be king? Well, he is the rightful king and yet this territory is contested. The dominion of sin, death, and the devil. The day is coming when his kingdom will come in its fullness. That's what we see at the end of the story. That sin and death have been vanquished and there is nothing and no one to stand against his just reign. Throughout the book of Revelation, the image of the king, the the king on the throne is central to the whole story, right? Time and again, if you remember our our series on defiant hope, the throne room of God in heaven. And yet here at Revelation 21 is the first place that we see the throne of God come to earth, the new renewed material creation. God's kingdom come in its fullness. So when we come to the end of the biblical story, we see this scene that provides us perspective on everything that's come before it. We see this scene that gives us these three themes, the the personal presence of God, the just reign of God, the perfect peace of God, and suddenly realize this is what the story's been about all along. These are the great themes of the Bible, the personal presence of God, God's deep desire to be with us. His people. That desire to be with us that was made problematic because of sin, a holy God who could not be with corrupt, sinful people. And the rest of the story of the Bible is God overcoming that problem until ultimately we will dwell with Him in His glorious personal presence. And if that's the great theme of the Bible, if that's the great theme of the end of the story, it ought to be the great theme of our lives as well. As we said before, you have the personal presence of God in your life right now if you have trusted in Christ. The Holy Spirit has come to take up residence in your life, but we have to cultivate the awareness of that reality. We have to choose to live in that reality, to remember that he is present here with us, to to cultivate a personal relationship, a sense of intimacy and dependence upon the presence and power of the Holy Spirit in our lives. God's personal presence, God's just reign And Jesus said to his disciples, seek first the reign of God. Seek first the kingdom of God and his set rightness. 
and, and the rest of this stuff will all take care of itself. That we are called to be people individually and collectively who are kingdom people. People whose lives are ordered by the just reign of God. The personal presence of God, the just reign of God, and finally the perfect peace of God. That this peace that will one day come in its fullness, we're invited to experience in part now. To breathe in God's peace in our lives. The New Testament tells us that that there is, for those of us who are in Christ, there is a peace that goes beyond our ability to explain or understand. The peace that passes understanding. That is available to us through Christ as we breathe in that peace. And then call to be those who breathe peace into the world. Blessed are the peacemakers for they will be called children of God because they look like their father, because they do what God does. Friends, these are the great themes of the end of the story and they are the great themes of the story all along there to be the great themes of our lives, the personal presence of God, the just reign of God, the perfect peace of God. In the first week of this series, I shared with you about my favorite hymn, This Is My Father's World. And that little phrase in there, he shines in all that's fair. And the idea that if you really begin to cultivate that awareness, that everything you experience that's that's joy-filled and delightful and beautiful, that he shines in all that's fair, that it'll change your life if you embrace that. But what I really love about the song is the way that it ends. Because it gets the story right. This is my father's world. Oh, let me ne'er forget that, oh, the wrong seems oft so strong. God is the ruler yet. And we look around the world right now and we see that the wrong is oft so strong indeed. But this is my father's world. Let me ne'er forget that, oh, the wrong seems oft so strong. God is the ruler yet. This is my father's world. The battle is not done. Jesus who died will be satisfied and earth and heaven Thank you for listening to this teaching from Irving Bible Church. For more information on how to join us on a Sunday or take your next step, visit irvingbible.org.